Welcome to Podcast with Cooper Cherry. Today, Sarah Hay is returning to uh, chat. We're going to chat a little bit about Beto versus uh, Cruz. They had a debate last night, and then the uh, Botham Jean case. And then, if we have time and we're feeling good about it, we may delve into the Brett Kavanaugh hearings and so forth. But, Sarah, first of all, thanks so much for joining me early this uh, Saturday morning. Relatively early, we'll say. Yeah, well, thanks so much for having me. Um, one slight difference, I am no longer hey, oh, okay. I'm now My Nugent. Bad. No, that's okay. okay. Um, I didn't drop it. I now just have two middle names. Okay, so, nice. Um, but yeah, so that's thank you. I, thanks for having me on. Yeah, wait, welcome back, and let, let us know what's been going on, because at the time we you first came on, you were just about to perhaps start your podcast, but you've decided to focus on blogging, a little bit more or tell, let me know what you've got going on yeah. lately. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I had this wonderful idea. Oh my gosh, let's start a podcast. It's all the craze. And then I kind of dove a little bit deeper and to produce something that I think um, would be quality content, especially with the subject matter that I want to do. Um, there's entire teams of people that produce things that I want to. Um, and so someone who's just starting out, um, I got a little overwhelmed. Um, so I decided to kind of just take a little step back um, a friend of mine um, suggested a free online podcast class that just, you know, dove into some of the basics. And um, I've been shadowing just, you know, I wanted to jump in, but I think I wasn't quite ready yet. So definitely still in the works. I also, I mean, I still write. Um, I have a very um, small project. Um, I know just creating an Instagram account might not um, <laughs> seem so big, um, but I just have always been racking my brain. I think, you know, from the last time that we talked, about helping others, you know, confront their privilege and um, especially if you're white and like what that means and how hard that is. And so um, I've been involved in community meetings, talks, events, and most of the time the people in attendance are people who are already aware of the issues, who already have that knowledge base. Um, And so really I'm like, how do we pull people in who need to hear this? Like, how does that happen? And I realized um, from my own journey, it was from reading. I, I love reading books. And so it was a lot of recommendations from friends. And it, I was able to have that conversation with myself um, in the comfort of my own home. Wherever I was reading, I was able to ask myself those hard questions without fear of judgment from others. And so I was like, hey, like, what if I provided this database of books that I've read to help others who may be interested? They're just scared to ask friends or scared to talk about it or are in a bubble where they don't feel safe or even just being aware of the books themselves like you know where do you start what are some good recommendations so i think that's that's a valuable tool yeah i i noticed a lot of the books that i put on there um are mostly at least locally in the african-american studies section and while i think that's that term is is helpful um, you're right. Not everyone would assume that those types of resources would be in that section. So I just, you know, started this Instagram account. We'll see where it goes. Um, but I'm I'm pretty excited about we, it. Did you share the handle for that? Did I did I miss no, that? Um, it is early. I've only had two cups of coffee, so I haven't had hit any, and I think that's my <laughs> mistake. Um, so the handle is at the woke library. T h e w o k e l i b r a r y all lowercase um they're the little logo is just black and white um created it super quick um i just needed something, something to put yeah, yeah as I a profile that. picture right so. <laughs> i've been there 
many times. But uh, so let's see. Do you want to even talk about your you have an at medium or medium.com account right do you want to do you want to put that out there on the airwaves at all sure um so i i do have a medium account for those who don't know what medium is um it's it's sort of like i like i don't have my own website per se or own personal blog um or personal url but um medium provides um a platform for you to have your own profile where you can post entries and there's a lot of people that have a medium accounts. There's really great writers on there. Um, I think it's just a, it was a great way for me to start out, um, you know, semi publishing my own pieces. And, um, if you go to medium.com and you just search, um, Sarah and then E H Nugent, um, my profile will come up. Um, I think it's like medium.com slash, um, Sarah H Nugent. Um, I think is what it is, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, (laughs) The picture is a blonde girl smelling a rose, if that (laughs) helps at all. (laughs) I was curious, so I did was reading since you did share that link with me, and um, I was curious, you had a story about how you were going to attend one of the counter-protests for the Unite the Right rally, if I'm not mistaken, is that right? Or or is that an older post? um, So it wasn't... The rally that I think you're referring to um, was um, just kind of around the time that the just police brutality and there was a lot of stories that were being heavily reported on. Um, And I don't necessarily it wasn't like an anti unite the right. It was just more of a like um, rally against um, white supremacy um, rally against police brutality, that type of thing. Um, and so I did attend that recently. Um, I'm sure people are aware, um, the family separation, that's the most recent thing I've been a part of. Um, the ACLU, um, got buses from all over the state, um, and other, um, and other states as well, who bust all the way down to Brownsville. I think me and, um, a family member of mine woke up and we had to meet for the bus at like four in the morning, oh, wow. hundreds of people We packed in these buses and we went to the border, um, to Brenton Brownsville. And, um, it was very, uh, impactful. It was very empowering. Um, I think it was one of the first, one of the first large scale United fronts against, um, this policy that was being taken out. And we did it at the, um, courthouse square where in that very building they were holding proceedings for these families um and so we did our like storm the storm the steps and 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 really just made our our presence known um the aclu has credited that as just an awakening like um just a newfound fire for fighting policies that are just really inhumane right that's awesome that's really cool that you're getting involved and and getting out there on the streets and mixing it up—that's I really ad- admire that quite a bit, actually. I oh, need to. Thanks. I need to <laughs> do what I can. <laughs> right. That's that's really cool. Um, do you have? An, is there anything um, coming up soon or within the next? Do you have anything on your horizon that you're looking into? Um, in in terms of going to any rallies or marches, there's not anything that I'm um, particularly that's on my radar. I am, um, there's a local organization, um, called Austin Justice Coalition. It's really great. Um, they're fairly new. Um, they had a lot of success lobbying the, um, Texas legislature, um, last session. Um, and they were able to pass, a, a at least support a lot of criminal justice reform laws. Um, so they were, they were successful and they're, um, they're, 
gaining steam. Um, and the founder is Chaz Moore. He's a really incredible guy. Um, unfortunately, my work schedule is kind of wonky, so I can't always make those meetings. Um, but through that organization, um, and they um, just to give some background, like they they fight for uh, you know racial injustice issues um, across Austin, and um, they're they're just really really great. I mean, they're. The executives or the people who are really involved, um, they go to Washington occasionally to lobby as well. Um, they're just really, really great people. Um, I've met some other um, people who are involved with um, the Texas Inmate Families, so- Families Association um, and some other plugins as well. I really, um, through my journey, have um, found a heart for those who are incarcerated. Um, and I, I think that's really, you know, where I truly want to get involved is, is helping inmates and those who have been incarcerated, um, there's re-entry programs and integrating back into society in, in a healthy, productive way. Definitely. Um, so when, when are the meetings, just out of curiosity? So there's a lot of meetings, actually. I would probably have to give you um, give you something, but there it's not, it's like the it's kind of wonky. I get, um, I subscribe to their email. Um, okay. so I think that would be a good way if you're what's, interested in, in, in uh, what's their, we- what's their website address? Um, it's yeah. If you just search Austin justice coalition, okay. um, they will have a website and there's a way that you can, um, subscribe to their newsletters, um, contact them and they will send you newsletter. They have, um, education policy meetings. Like they have different sectors that they focus, oh, that's focus cool. on okay. so education. Um, just, normal policy meetings. Um, recently they held a legislative training session because, um, the Texas, um, legislative sessions coming up this next year. So they had like a basics one-on-one of how to lobby the government, a training. Um, and there was around 50 people there and it was really successful. And, and I went, um, and I learned a lot, um, cause I'm not, um, I, I follow people who do that kind of work. I've just never actually stuck my toes in. So, um, but yeah, if you just go to the website, subscribe to their um, newsletter, it gives you all the dates and when their meetings are. Um, like this past two weeks, they celebrated um, Black Food Week. And they only did it for a week, but it was so successful that they extended it another week. And it's essentially they were highlighting um, restaurants in Austin who were black owned and who've been around for a really long time, but are in predominantly um, in communities of color that people don't really know about and so that was that was recently something they did do you remember what any of those restaurants are just out of curiosity oh man i like i said since my work schedule was kind of late <laughs> i never really got to go oh, okay um, gotcha. one i was actually particularly interested in i can't remember the name but they it was a, a jamaican um cuisine restaurant um, my husband's family is jamaican so i'm always reminded of his mom's caribbean food so always always down um for some jamaican food curry any of that sounds great. Well, do you want to, are you ready to delve it? Do you want to do, I think maybe it, it might be easy to start out with Cruz and O'Rourke because mm-hmm. I think there's a little bit of overlap there with the Botham John, at least in, in the sense that Ted Cruz is posting videos of uh, Beto talking in a church in Dallas mm-hmm. about the, about the whole situation. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that might be a natural segue, Yeah, but you, you as well are a life life uh, lifelong Texan, am I right? Or no, you mm-hmm. went to college in Alabama, right? But yeah. you grew up 
Yes. Was it Waxahachie? Oh, you said it right. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, south Dallas, it's like 20 minutes um, south uh, south of Dallas. It's right on 35. Um, you will, if you're on 35, you will pass it. Uh, so yeah, that's where I grew up. And then that's right. I, I went to play um, soccer in, uh, in Alabama. That's where I went to college. And then uh, we came back here to Austin afterwards. Um, so I was kind of removed from Texas politics a little bit, and I got pretty involved when I was in Alabama, and it kind of took a little bit um, to get back into things yeah. once I got got back here. But um, this this election will be something. I'm I'm excited about how how do you feel? How do you feel? I mean, I'm I'm extremely jaded. <laughs> I've been jaded. I was jaded for, uh, since like the first Bush term. So oh. <laughs> you know. I'm pretty take a pretty cynical approach to it. I'm I'm definitely obviously I'm hopeful that you know I would rather have just about anyone I, I would I would rather have even a homegrown lunatic from some obscure Texas town than have Ted Cruz because to me Ted Cruz is I don't know he he gives off weird vibes um, and there's something off about the guy and. <laughs> You know, that's a total ad hominem, but I don't really care. Um, I would, yeah, I'd rather have just some crazy lunatic from, I don't even know where, like, you know, dime box or something that would be a senator that rather than, than this guy. So um, I'm, I'm really skeptical that Beto is going to be able to outdo uh, Cruz, even as, you know, there's a lot of, I think, national support. For Betonio, he's getting his name out there, which is good. But I, I just think that overcoming the the amount of voters that are in the Cruz base is a really that's a tough that's a tough tough road to hoe. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm mildly, <laughs> extremely mildly optimistic about that. Mm-hmm. But I, I I mean ultimately, if you had to ask me, if you put a gun to my face, I would say that I I would probably put money on Cruz to win the election. Mm-hmm. And I'm overall, I'm pretty bearish overall on the Democrats gaining seats in the midterms, and, and and that's even before going into you know like I'm I'm a little bit to the left I would say of of even Beto or you know the mainstream Democratic Party, so even them getting in alone I don't think is going to make a lot of material difference in in people's lives ultimately, but obviously it can make a difference. So I'm not saying, I'm not one of those people that's going to advocate to not vote, but I think the types of direct action that you're participating in, for example, is a lot more instrumental and going to create a lot more change necessarily than, you know, voting for someone who is a little bit less evil than than someone like Ted Cruz, for example. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, um, well, that was great. And I think you, I think you made a lot of great points. Um, if I had to be realistic, um, I'm, I'm, I would echo that. I'm mild, mildly um, optimistic. Um, I think some of the primary things that need to have it happen. I think Texas has like 90, 95% um, voter registration. Like people are, are registered. It's but they about, don't vote. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah it's, it's about showing up. Um, I think 
these strategies of Beto going on, like Ellen, he was on Ellen DeGeneres, going on those national platforms, I think was very smart. And I think yeah. the way he handled himself, um, I think the way just um, his air and the way he handles himself in public in general um, is is something that I, that I find very positive. I also think it's very strategic of him to be someone, I, he is always talking about, I'm willing to go across the aisle, like I'm willing to work. And I think that's something you have to have in Texas because there are those. It doesn't even have to be Ted Cruz. It, re- it just has to be anything red. Um, and you say anything about keeping things moral, keeping things Christian, keeping things conservative. Like those are just those tenets um, that I think a lot of Texans are just going to stick to. And there's not a whole, whole lot that we can do about that except getting those others who um, haven't voted to vote or someone who might be in the middle ground who might be pretty disgusted, honestly, with where the GOP is going and the current presidency and just um, all the movements, the Me Too movement, just all of these things, um, I think, have created, if someone was going to turn Texas blue, I think this is a really good atmosphere yeah. for that to happen. Definitely. that's. A, I think that's a great point to call out is if, if it's someone, I mean, I'm pretty impressed by Beto. I mean, his street cred alone is pretty impressive. I don't know if you knew this, but... You know, Ted Cruz had called him out for being in a, in a punk band back in the day. But mm-hmm. what is even cooler about that is that the he was in a band with a guy that, I forget, the, it's, uh, I think Zavala is the last name, but he was the lead singer for Mars Volta. Mm-hmm. And I'm, if I'm not mistaken, at the drive-in as well. Wow. So, cool. I mean, that's, that's pretty amazing. A uh, little bit of, you know, trivia there that's, pretty cool that in mm-hmm. you know makes him a little bit more endearing i think uh just from a general standpoint mm-hmm. not that that you know tra- necessarily translates into a political uh success or what have you but still i think kind of kind of a cool thing compared to ted cruz who you know even amongst the senate is which is kind of a cabal of um all sorts of, all sorts of ghouls like <laughs> chuck grassley or orrin hatch um so <laughs> Even amongst those people, he's kind of despised by his peers and has always, I think, people in college, even in college, he was uh, sort of disliked. And again, total ad hominem. I'm going to own that. But it's like, yeah, if if you've been considered kind of a uh, kind of an asshole your whole life, I don't know, that, that says something about your character and who you are. So... Um, beyond the fact that i don't know ted cruz just reminds me of of a salamander or something <laughs> like he i feel like he has an assistant that is kind of constantly must mist him with water so they do he doesn't dry out <laughs> i'm trying not to destroy your levels right now <laughs> that um that's a fantastic comparison um and i like i said when i went to college in alabama um that was kind of when um just some context for you. The that was when Robert um, Bentley was governor, and he it had blown up that he had um, had an affair, um, and so you know people were trying to decide whether that was grounds for impeachment. Um, and now you have Kay Ivey as governor, and so all of that's going on. And then in Texas at the time, it was um, I think Wendy Davis was uh, challenging yeah. um, Governor Abbott for for that. And so when I came back, and I just 
see Ted Cruz there, I'm like, how did how did we get here? You're right. Like if if even among his peers and among people who are were closest to him, um, he's a very controversial, just not overall, just not a liked person. Like, how did we get here? Right. Um, oh, and, God, and so <laughs> depressing being in Texas. It's like depressing enough, but then Ted Cruz, like, I mean, who's the other senators? John Cornyn, which mm-hmm. I think he's kind of repulsive enough. But Cruz just, I don't know, something just doesn't strikes me about the guy. Mm-hmm. And I honestly got a, the same reaction to Brett Kavanaugh. Just like looking at them, you can just know that there's... <laughs> Something is weird. There's something off about you. I don't trust you one bit. Maybe I'm, I'm going to go even lower and say maybe it's the nose. Maybe. Right? <laughs> I don't. Well, I um, personally, yes, I do feel that way as well. Um, and I, I definitely think maybe there's grounds for that. I just, I, I wonder how, um, for instance, his performance as trying to, uh, like being a presidential candidate, what what maybe those uh, the strategy was or how they thought maybe that would affect his success later on down the line um how how much that plays into it because i think you really make yourself vulnerable when you set yourself on such a national That's true, stage right um and so i think people from outside of texas are rooting for us to go blue oh, yeah, i mean they're sure. just um there's a very similar feeling to what you have of as I don't know if it's as specific as a salamander, but something <laughs> comparable, um, I think, is there. So I, I I'm hopeful, and um, I, yeah, I just think I don't want to just keep echoing the same thing. But I, if you have some sort of idea about this or want to learn more, just Google. I, I mean, I, I don't even care. I just just inform yourself and go and vote. Um, I'm not one to just always scream vote 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 from from the rooftops but i really think this is something that's important yeah i mean get involved direct like you're doing direct action but also vote i mean like i said this the voter turnout is appalling in texas i think we're definitely in the bottom 10 Mm -hmm. among states when it comes Mm -hmm. to actual voter turnout Mm -hmm. which is just makes the whole cruise thing just even more just Maybe that's how we got deep here. breath, deep breath. Yeah, exactly. You're absolutely right. It's just like, oh God, just please, <laughs> anyone but this guy. Anyone. I mean, if I didn't go- mention this either, but I'm sure you're aware of like the whole Ted Cruz is the Zodiac killer meme. Oh, no. <laughs> I mean, come on. <laughs> Who? How many people get that sort of meme attached to them? Like, there's something. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. There's a general sense about this guy that yeah. he's just. He's off, so. Yeah. I, I don't put too, too much of my hopes and dreams into Twitter. However, um, if you need a good laugh, that's the place to go. Um, I do think if you're doing informed following, um, there's some really great resources that you can find through Twitter. Um, and I, it's one of my favorite um, social media outlets, you know, for myself. Um, I think it was, I always love following Twitter during debates um, or if there is a new story just to see like what the immediate reaction is and um, I was very busy last night so um, me and my like myself I wasn't able to watch the debate but I was able to kind of get some recap um, and I think one of the things that a lot of people took away that was positive from the debate was when um, Beto was asked about how um, 
you know, did you run when you um, were drunk driving and, and got, I think you got in an accident, not totally fully aware of the details, but um, it was just, it was passed around that it was an upstanding answer. It was, this is what I did. I accept full responsibility. It wasn't, this happened a long time ago. You shouldn't care. No one needs to worry about it. It was like, this happened and I own up to it and there's no excuse. Like you use the, the phrase, no excuse. Um, and I think he turned that into something really cool, or at least I'm a little biased about this, but he was saying, you know, because of the color of my skin, I enjoyed privileges, even Uh, in some of the worst, you know, the worst situation in my life, I enjoyed privileges that as a black or Latino man would not enjoy if, or, or not have if, you know, someone, um, who is of color did something that way as well, or did some, did that. So I, I think that was a great turnaround. And you had mentioned um, Ted Cruz was sharing these videos of him attending black churches. And um, I it's it's the same, but it's also different from the way Bernie Sanders tried to frame it in the presidential election. I had went to um, one of Bernie Sanders' um, rallies when he was in Birmingham, and he really tried to pull that I was there with Martin Luther King Jr. And... Um, I could tell that was kind of one of the primary ways he was trying to get that vote. But some, and I, I still don't know what it is. People who are smarter than me who analyze that stuff will, will know and probably do know. But just something didn't stick. Yeah. And I think the way Beto is approaching it is really sticking. Um, and I think it's because he knows black women are way more likely to die in childbirth in Texas, um, actually in, in developed countries throughout the world. Um, going directly to a black church, standing up in front of a hurting, a possible like hurting community and having the boldness to say those things and make these promises is something that I think is sticking and I hope it sticks. You know, what's funny is like I had mentioned earlier that Ted Cruz had actually posted that video on his Twitter and is like, oh, this is... Like, this is what my opponent says. Like, oh, you know, like, I guess, and and I'm like, the tacit implication is that you are okay with, you know, a police officer, you know, a member of the the local government Mm -hmm. coming into someone's home and shooting them because they have um, the devil's lettuce. Yeah. (laughs) Which I'll be calling it um, for dramatic effect. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I'm like, what, what sort of, who approved that tweet? Your uh, PR team should be fired. <laughs> You're making your opponent look good. But I don't know if it even, maybe that does play well in Texas, you know, mm-hmm. the whole law and order sort of thing. Yeah. Well, I think, and in, in this is getting kind of outside our scope, but in general, um, law and order, I mean, that goes back to even, um, goes back to Reagan, goes back to even Bill Clinton. Um, it's hard to run for anything, um, to be a candidate for anything if you aren't, um, seen as hard on crime right. because kind of the general sense is I want my community to be safe. Um, but I think there's kind of a misunderstanding where being hard on crime, it, it's not the solution. I think that's um, becoming more well-known and people, hey, hey these three strikes laws, um, prosecuting people who have ounces of marijuana, overcrowding jails, like these, these things have repercussions. Like it costs, if you're into um, taxpayer money, like it costs taxpayers so much to process so many people through our prison system. Like I said, I'm kind of going down a rabbit hole, but I <laughs> think fine. that it's like fine. the, the hard on crime um, and I, and I see conservatives do it all the time 
because it's it's something that's been echoed a long, long time. What I think is interesting is that, okay, so it's it's not hard, being hard on crime in the sense of, oh, let's look at the structural issues that cause crime. It's being, oh, once you have been caught c- committing a quote-unquote crime, then we must punish, must severely punish you and swiftly without, you know, looking at the greater ramifications of why, why things are going wrong. And to me, that's the biggest distinction between sort of the Republican view and the more liberal or democratic view or even leftist, for example, is, you know, the Republican view is, okay, we're all individuals and we all have freedom and we make, we make decisions that are isolated from any sort of contextual um, or historical setting, right? Well, yes, in that sense, then you're th- if you think that all crime or, you know, all action and free will are coming, stemming from the individual, then, yeah, you probably won't have any idea about trying to think about more contextual issues that, that create crime. Uh, you know what I mean? I don't think crime is just, it doesn't just happen because pe- they're not, people aren't just bad people, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, On, I, and from an essential mm-hmm. point of view, like you're not just born a bad person. There are bad actions, but, you know, your con- context of where you grow up and mm-hmm. all of these historical things are going to impact the the path that you're allowed to take or can take. And sometimes you can make bad decisions based on that. I mean... Yeah, I 100% um, agree with that. I think the the notion of um, pull yourself up from your bootstraps, um, just this hardworking, you earn... Whatever you earn is a direct result of your work and what you do. And whatever you do is what you deserve. And if you don't do that, and if that's not your circumstances and that's not your result, then it's your responsibility. It's something on you. Well, I think um, people who enjoy a level of privilege don't realize that the, the systems in place were created for, in general, systems in our American society were built to help white men succeed. Now, there's been significant reform, there's been a lot of changes, and I think those things are good things, but fundamentally, just in, you can look back at any, in any major institution, um, and it comes from helping, um, if you are white, if you are heterosexual, and if you are a male, it is there to help you succeed. And um, I also don't think people take into account generational trauma. There's been studies done on what um, slavery has done to um, those families who have descendants um, who were um, who were enslaved and what that meant to the wealth accumulated, accumulated to the opportunities um, that those families were able to, to have. And just, just that trauma of the constant fear and the being let down. And like I said, I'm not articulating this very well, but there are studies that have been done that generational trauma is, is really a thing. And I think that's also part of the conversation of privilege. Like I have to, had to come to a point where, where I grew up, where I went to school, the income of my mom and dad, um, the incomes of generations before me, all of these things play into and have a significant, now it doesn't um, always directly result in what happens. Like There are definitely cases out there where people are able to completely change their outcomes. Um, but I think it, it plays a much larger role 
than people either realize or are either to accept. So if you're if you're a person of privilege, when you see um, affirmative action, when you see policies that are meant to make things more equal, to you it seems like oppression because right. you're used to um, enjoying those privileges and enjoying those freedoms, and so it 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 internally is an it is is an attack on what you enjoy. I was listening to a podcast yesterday that described this phenomenon and really tried to, I guess, explain the current political situation in that there's a lot of people that are feeling sort of a, a sense of irrelevancy as as we're progressing through history with the advance of technology and they're, you know, at least being some more nominally egalitarian aspect of, you know, I guess a little bit more, you know, there has been some push towards a more diverse makeup of the capitalist system, although we, there's obviously a long way to go, even by liberal standards. But I thought that was, uh, I think something, something is definitely happening, happening as far as these, there's something genuine that is causing these people this, um, to lash out in this way. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And just their their energy is misdirected in a sense, mm-hmm. and they don't really have the right con. They don't have the right ideological context to understand, or intellectual context to understand the greater implications, and are so kind of swept up in this story of rugged individualism, for example, and what have you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yes. I don't. Yes, absolutely. Um, And I also think that, um, like, for instance, um, I one of my favorite podcasts is um, Slate's uh, The Political Gap Fest. Um, One of my favorite people on the face of the planet is Emily Bazelon. Um, She's a writer for the New York Times Magazine. Um, They it's normally Emily Bazelon, John Dickerson and David Plotz. Um, And it's three really smart humans talking about really smart things. And it makes me feel smarter. (laughs) Um, So recently, sometimes, um, you know, they're all really, really successful and they have busy schedules. If someone's out, they'll have a guest on. Um, someone who recently was featured on a most recent episode, um, his name is David French. I'm not sure. If oh yeah. You, if you know definitely him. heard of David French. Yeah. Um, he, I, I'm, I know he is a writer for, I think it's the national review is where this uh, most recent article was written. Um, but he kind of talks about his evolution of how he thinks about police brutality and the Black Lives Matter movement because he's been very high, has been highly critical and is known to be highly critical of movements like that. And um, I won't go so far to, to say um, I would say he's a more conservative writer. Um, you know, to well, my, yeah, for to National my... Review, I mean, <laughs> that's kind of yeah. And I just um, I like I appreciated the um it it was a well-written article there's definitely things that i didn't um didn't agree with and and one of them um he is analyzing a study that was done by the washington post um about police shootings and um, police shooting victims um and they measured other things um because i guess the washington post kind of made this uh, determination that there was a gap in a lot of the um information and statistics that we have even though i'd probably argue that too read the new Jim Crow. There's a ton of statistics on these things. So I, you know, that was kind of iffy for me as well. But one of the things that he says is, you know, it's simply like black men are more likely to commit violent crimes. And I really had a problem with that. And I think 
one of the reasons I had a problem with that is that's just what it's not a nice thing to say. And two, I just, um, if you look at where people of like these communities of color, like when you are suffering from poverty, when you don't know, um, if you're going to make your ne- next, um, paycheck, if you don't know where your next meal's coming from, like at fundamentally, when you take away basic human needs, like you have scarcity of resources, people are going to find a way, whether that's um, participating in selling drugs or participating in substances, um, substance abuse. Um, it's not that I think human being, like those human beings are inherently more right, violent. Exactly. Um, it's, be, it's being driven by a, a, a by poverty. Um, I think poverty just really, really has a deeper trench than people realize. And so I think that's one of my primary critiques of of that is I don't think any of those these other factors were put into context. It was just black men are more likely to right. There's something violent. essential about black men that caused them to to create crime. And there's no, oh, it's it's so up. Oh, there's nothing we can be done except punish these individuals instead of addressing the systemic uh, features that are likely the root cause of all this. But before, I, I kind of want to redirect back to Cruz mm-hmm. and O'Rourke, because I think, like I said, we can segue into some of these topics about race. And one interesting thing that I noticed, or I don't know why I hadn't really made this connection before, was how amusing is it that Rafael Cruz goes by Ted and... Why am I? What's what's Beto's actual first it's name? Like Robert something. I have to look. This is embarrassing that I don't know this off the top of my head. But let me see. Well, uh, when you see Beto signs everywhere, <laughs> right? it's kind of hard to remember. I think it's Robert something. Um, but you're right. I'm in the same boat. I'm not entirely sure. Um, you know what's funny is I when I hear Beto. So whenever I was in high school, I think our so our. Um, oh, it is Robert, by the way. So one of, uh, what was the text we used was uh, Dime Uno was like my first Spanish book. And so one of the, they would play these videos in class and uh, one of the characters was Beto, Beto Chavez, (laughs) (laughs) which still sticks to me to this day. And this was like, I don't know, it was probably 16 at this point. So I don't, I don't know why that's just a a non sequitur there, but I always, that's what always comes to my head. Anytime I hear Beto, is I want to say Beto, Beto Chavez. Um, wasn't there a, a U, this is going way off topic um a ut mascot was beto or like there was i swear there was some Bevo? Mas- Be- that's what it was oh, okay. okay yep okay I was so like, what? <laughs> almost, almost there not quite um of just disclaimer i've never really been super into um texas sports <gasps> gasp gasp right. but um even just sports in general i'll support south alabama because that's where i went to school but otherwise but what do, what do you think that it says that Cruz who his and his, his father is was Cuban and then is going by Ted when his first name is Rafael and then O'Rourke goes by Beto but he's a white guy named Robert I think that's a really hilarious distillation of of maybe the political divide the racial divide and it, it really, to me, just says a lot in just a very <laughs> succinct sort of observational way. You can kind of like glean. There's so much to dig into there, right? Yeah. Is it just me? 
No, I, I've actually never thought about that before. Um, and I think in order for me to dig more into that, I would probably need to know if it was like a nickname. Because, I mean, because Beto oh, well, is yeah. from D- like El Paso. Yeah, he's from El Paso. I mean, it's definitely a nickname. And he's explained that on video. And I'm sure the same applies to Cruz. I think his middle name is was Theodore or something. So, I mean, it's like it's like a little... it's. It's fairly legit that, okay, he goes by Ted, whatever. But you know what I mean? It just, mm-hmm. it it gives you that question of like, there's definitely something going on. It's weird that someone who, especially in a state that has a, such a high um, Hispanic population, that you would not go by Rafael. I mean, I don't mm-hmm. know. I don't know. It's weird. There's, a, there's something funny going on mm-hmm. when, in this whole identity politics world where we have a white guy that goes by a Hispanic nickname and a, um, I guess Hispanic guy that goes by a white, quote unquote white nickname. I don't know. Ted, maybe that maybe that's going a little a step too far to say it's a white nickname. But I mean, come on, Ted. <laughs> yeah, you know I, what Ted's, I mean. Ted's that's pretty... a fairly kind of white guy nickname, right? I yeah, I've actually never, I like I said I've never <laughs> I've never thought about that before, and I whether that is um, like intentional or intentional, I do think metaphorically there's something to say about that like who each of them as individuals like the the base or the audience that they're trying to appeal to um or maybe it's just something that rolls off the tongue better and so they just needed something that was more Uh, campaignable right um but yeah whether it's intentional or intentional i um i yeah i there's got to be some there has to be intentionality on it for both sides you know what i mean yeah. And do you I, think I this is probably a dumb question to ask. Um, do you think that would it be considered cultural appropriation for Beto to use to go by that nickname? You know what I mean? Does that Ooh, but cult, just because he's a democrat, question. he gets away with I don't know, you know what I mean? Just in the in the identity politics era, it se- it does seem kind of like you know, what nobody's mm-hmm. talking about that too much. Yeah. That's it's also a great question. So cultural appropriation i think that that is something that needs to be um i think it's being explored more um but i also think cultural appropriation means something differently to each person yeah and i think it affects different people differently and so those those conversations are just are way too long for this podcast and how much time we have um i as someone who isn't um, who isn't Hispanic, who doesn't um, have a lot of familiar, familiarity with um, with Spanish or that type of cultural connection, um, I don't necessarily see a problem with it, but that's yeah, because true. I have no I have no basis um, to make that claim. Um, so if you know if one of your listeners would provide insight, that would be great. Um, I, I like I said, you bring up really great points I've never thought about before. I mean, I think that at least according to the stories that he's told, like I'm, I'm willing to, uh, because I'm not the biggest. Like I haven't really investigated cultural appropriation enough. Um, I'm a little skeptical of it overall because I just don't like to essentialize people or groups in that way and say, oh, if you are this, then that means this. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I think you have to really. You can't judge people's 
I mean, what is culture? You know what I mean? That that changes and so forth. So I don't know. I'm a little bit shy about fixed categories and things like that. But I just think it's somewhat interesting. Like I could see people making the argument, oh, like well, this guy's trying to cash in on this Hispanic nickname. Like, you know what I mean? Is is this legit? Is there something more to it? Um, I I think that claim might... Him, him having that name might mean more since he gave a lot towards that community. Like he's from there. I, yeah. I think um, it would be harder to claim cultural appropriation. That's true. Yeah, um, that's a good point, actually. Um, but I think overall in that conversation, um, how I've looked at that before, there are a lot of great resources and podcasts out there that confront this. And specifically um, just between... Um, like black culture and how, um, and when I say white culture, it just means like the, the culture of, of privilege because um, white is um, system. We're not going to get into that. <laughs> anyway, um, so that conversation because um, whiteness um, take has taken over so much of black culture and throughout history has done its best to stomp it out um, or change it. Um, or say that it's wrong, that I think there are ways um, that cultures can appropriate one another. And it's even a bigger conversation about, um, because I know in New York they have a lot of um, festivals celebrating um, Africanness and what that means. And it's an interesting conversation to have because a lot of um, lineage of black families aren't, isn't, it's not known. It's lost at a certain point. Makes sense. So it's like trying to find your identity, what, what that means, what that general uh, generational trauma means. Um, So it's a huge conversation, but I think in the context we're talking about, I think it's harder to claim that simply because that is his community and that is where he, where he is coming from. Right. It's not like he's, he, if he grew up in Highland Park or something mm-hmm. and took the nickname Beto Ooh. without like the street cred. Yeah. Ooh, Highland Park. They, al- <laughs> they always beat, they always had a great women's soccer team in high school and they always beat our team. Side note, they were really great. They always cut, kicked us out of the playoffs. But yeah, I'd like Power to, to them. <laughs> I'd really like to hear this. T- like, I want to hear someone who is more acquainted with all of it um, discuss this this whole the the whole nickname thing especially in this race i think and especially at this time to me is just super interesting and kind of i don't know the irony of it is really amusing to me i don't know why i think that's so just it just makes me laugh in a sense not like out like out loud but in my head i'm just like i don't know i just kind of like want to shake my head and just laugh at it because it seems kind of absurd to me but Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I, um, I totally see where you're coming from there. I, I would definitely have to seek outside sources to um, have a valid conversation about that or even, even have any input. Um, but I, I think there is something to, to be said there. And you make a great point about those names and whether that actually means, means something um, or if that was intentional in trying to reach out to or identify with a certain sect of, of their audience or their um, constituents. Voting base. Yes, constituents. That's the word I've been trying to search <laughs> for for 20 minutes. But uh, I guess we can sort of segue that too now into, so here we are again, and we have, uh, you know, in reference to the Botham John whole scenario mm-hmm. going down in Dallas recently, which I, if the audience doesn't know, are, how acquainted with 
the facts of the case are you because I hadn't really I had was nominally aware of it I mean it's almost becoming you know a, a parody it's, of itself at this point where like you sort of are getting to expect this kind of thing happening it's uh it's hard to it's hard not to know about what happened now the specific details of the case um I think that's something that's changing right because right, I yeah. think this this officer I just wasn't sure if you had been paying attention because I know this mm-hmm. is definitely something we discussed a lot when you first came on the podcast. Yeah. I, I would say um, I, I'm i pretty familiar with the situation. Um, and I, like I said, I know that detail, like the the, the story keeps changing, which I think is the, the really suspicious part of it. Um, and it's just, first, I just want to start out like that. It's just a tragedy. And it's horrible. It makes me sick. I can't even imagine what that community is going through that what his family's going through it's just awful. yeah right awful. the fam i mean wow but to give a summary i suppose of the actual details that we know at least so there was an off-duty police officer that was going coming home after i think it was something like a 14-hour shift mm-hmm. supposedly had a bunch of bags and things from that they were carrying got off on and this is her story got off on the wrong floor of the apartment complex tries to enter an apartment thinking it's their apartment sees a silhouette in the dark and then fires upon that silhouette and it ended up being the gentleman botham john who died um tragically mm-hmm. due to this whole scenario and sort of that's that's a ba- basically where we are what's interesting though is you know for one how do you i mean i guess can you get off on the wrong floor? Perhaps, apparently, Mr. Jean had a red uh, doormat out in front of his door, which everyone is essentially saying, making the argument. You know, wouldn't you have noticed if you yeah. weren't at your apartment if this apartment had this sort of bright red um, doormat? That would be a context clue of, hey, wait, maybe I got off on the wrong floor. Yeah, which sort of throws her story into a little. You know what I mean? It's bringing some questions. Related there's, there, yeah. There's been a lot of questions. There's also been changes to the story, right? I've I've heard versions of the door was a little bit of a, a jar, jar yeah, or right. um, and then I, like I said, in the world, um, the wide world of Twitter, there was actually people from the apartment complex who were saying, you know, posting videos of how heavy those doors are and how it's impossible for them to be a jar. Yeah. Um, and just debunking different stories that she's bringing to the table. Um, and, and I think while those details are important and I think they're going to be brought up, um, you know, in trial, I just something, you know, I know I just criticized um, a, a little bit um, David French's recent um, article, but in that same podcast, he made a really good point how um, he, as as an officer, like when you are on duty, on duty as as an officer and as a cop you are um he used the phrase clothed um as a, a patron of the of the of the state like you have that authority on when you are a civilian and you are off like you do not have that clothing like you are not clothed with the authority of the state that is not something that is afforded to you you are a civilian and you are subject to the punishments that are in order for someone who, quite frankly, I, I would say murder. And, oh, I would too. Um, and I think he criticized the way that she's been handled. Like she wasn't um, arrested 
right away. It took a couple of days for them to go. She's been afforded these privileges and these leniencies that every everyday Joe Schmo wouldn't be afforded right. simply because she is a cop. And I think that's um, sparked a lot of outrage as well. Oh, absolutely. Well, definitely in the context where we're in, in terms of Black Lives Matter and the whole the whole uh, controversy over Colin Kaepernick and the kneeling with the NFL. I mean, you know, this is a different context that we're in at this point. But I mean, how terrible is it that, you know, like your first thought is to like pull out your gun and that's it. Like you pull out your gun and ask questions later. That whole thing. And that's where we talked about this when you came on the podcast the first time. I think that having a police force in the way that we do lends itself to this sort of behavior because and, you know, this is a cliche, but it so applies here that everything is a nail to a hammer. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so whenever you're in that context of being a police officer, again, it's just I don't know how else to articulate it than everything, every, you know, every nail or every hammer is looking for that nail. Yeah. I think that's the best way to describe it. And I think community policing or some type of other method of handling law enforcement has to be looked into and we otherwise the same thing is going to happen and it's going to happen over and over and over again where people are abusing their authority and not not erring on the side of caution innocent people die because of it and the fact that some of those people are are marginalized it just makes it even worse you know what i mean it leaves a bad taste in in most people's mouth especially mine i just I mean, it, it's it, terrible. It cripples communities and it has, um, it's created trauma in communities for generations for a long time. And I think something that, that is essential and we're kind of honing in on, I, hopefully, um, you mentioned community policing. I think one of the largest things that can be done is um, having a council or having a, a, a general body of citizens who are there to review to report to keep those institutions accountable because right right now there's nothing keeping um police stations um or or those organizations um in check there's there's nothing there overseeing them and so there's this culture of um i'm going to i'm I'm not going to snitch i'm not going to Going, I'm going to cover up things. Exactly. I'm going to um, the, the the blue code like that. If you have a culture like that, it's really hard. Um, and I really think that played into how um, this this woman, because um, and I think it's interesting to to call her an officer because she is. But like I said, in this context, she right. was not exactly. Yeah. And so like it in in the legal legality, like she is a woman who shot and killed a man. Like that. That's ultimately what happened and i think for her to claim that authority of the state and to use those privileges is pretty abhorrent i i just i'm not sure how low you have to go and i'm not i so in in the context of um or in the conversation about you know keeping people accountable and keeping those organizations accountable i think that's where um movements are trying to start for instance um do you know who uh, sean king is yeah, yeah. So he recently um, started an organization to help 
fund campaigns for um, people who want to hire different DAs in their like district attorneys. And so um, if you do any bit of research, you know um, that some of the most powerful people in a courtroom, the most powerful person in a courtroom is the prosecutor. And who are over those prosecutors is normally the DA's office. And so um, it's this movement to hire um, and, and elect people who are for criminal justice reform or are for firing prosecutors who time and time again have racial bias um, or don't follow the rules or have just done whatever they want to in, in their tenure. So um, I think that's also a way, but there it's it's different parts like bail reform. It's all different parts um, to, to this, how the system works and ultimately yeah. it's accountability. And I think it goes back to as well, you know, I was talking about earlier about this law and order ideal of, oh, we're going to punish criminals. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That mindset very clearly is obviously trickling down to the day-to-day law, you know, law enforcement officer, especially in this context, thinking are your, your first reaction is to shoot. Like, and this is not, and I, I think we need to situate this context too in terms of the where this actual incident took place this is a very um this is a very expensive loft um in dallas in downtown dallas i have i lived in dallas um pretty close to this area for a couple of years and i had friends that live there so i know this is not a this is not like a cheap low rent sort of building that anyone can just walk into necessarily yeah you could probably finagle your way into it right but it's it's not like you can just ro- stroll through you It'd know what i mean be some level of effort right yeah exactly you would have to put in some time so the fact that she was willing to just pull out her gun first you know that seems weird mm-hmm. and re- whether you're threat you know you're feeling threatened or so forth i don't know it seems it seems very odd that that's the first instinct like your gut reaction is this is an intruder this is not like a home you know what i mean in a quiet neighborhood where you come home and you see a silhouette this is a giant apartment complex yeah and i also think um not just accountability but also um i think you're kind of um stepping into training for how right exactly police officers like how they're even taught to um, de-escalate situations, um, basic communication skills, how how to make sure um, that we're that we're helping those that are. And I, and I understand there's always a level of danger. Um, being a police officer is a very dangerous job. I'm never going to take that away um, for, from those who um, serve in that way. I just I also think there. Um, I, I did a little bit of research um, while I was in college about looking at different. Um, police forces and the differences in the classes that they take, how long police academies are. Um, And I understand that within every um, state, with every city, with every um, um, space and area that you're policing, there's obviously individual things that you need to know. But I'm not saying that they all need to have the same curriculum, but in none of those curriculums did I see any communication de-escalation. It was mainly here are the laws. Um, and I think our approach to immediately pulling out our gun and not being able to deal with high stress situations um, in a productive way is is also something that I think is crucial. Um, 
but it would also, it would not force us, but we would have to work with law enforcement and like they would have to be willing to make those changes to the curriculum. You, you put that really beautifully. I like the way that you phrased that. That was great. But yeah, I think even let's say, and just in terms of de-escalating situations, I mean, it would have been bad enough, right? If she had tased him or something like that, but I, at least he would be alive if he was tased or something, even, you know, whatever, pepper spray, whatever, you know, whatever non-lethal means that they have available to them would have been an egregious uh, incursion on his civil rights. But the man would still be alive. And this was a hardworking guy. He was like a youth minister. Um, I think he, he worked for PricewaterhouseCooper. I mean, this was not some like low-life kind of... Uh, kind of guy like he wasn't involved in criminal activity you know supposedly they did find a little of the devil's lettuce in his apartment but you know far be for me to judge that aspect of man and certainly not worth um killing or even injuring him remotely for so i don't know if that's some is that a move but for by the police to discredit him to some degree you know you i'm sure you could see arguments both ways but yeah absolutely like that's also something that makes this especially egregious. They, you know, there was a, a an active um, intentionality behind going in and having to find some way to make this person um, come out as a criminal. Discredit and I, them, and yeah. I just want to say very plainly, even as some, and I, and I know not everyone feels this way, um, but to me, even if someone is, whatever you want to call worst of the worst criminal even if this person was the head of some drug kingpin cartel like he is still a life and he is still of human life and just because you're an officer of the law or any other doesn't make your life more precious um and so i i I really do want to put that out there because i've seen those arguments too like he was in there's always this um push to make this person seem so good and that's wonderful like i'm i'm really um it does make it more heartbreaking to hear um what a wonderful person um he was but i also just want to make the case that even if they were a home like what our society would deem as um a low life throwaway home you know those those labels that we have like they are still entitled to their life and it does not mean that you have the authority to end it exactly period um and so i that's also another argument that i have when it comes to the way we Um, approach policing when a gun is pulled and the idea that simply because you're afraid or simply because you feel like your safety is being threatened all of a sudden because you're clothed with the authority of the state or just because of this position you have suddenly your life becomes more important than this other person and i just fundamentally don't believe in that at all right Um, that's rather uh snowflake-ish if if you will uh, well, indulge me, call me I don't care. Like, <laughs> no i'm not talking about you i'm talking about the on the cops side mm-hmm. of like oh I'm, I'm i'm threatened let me pull out my weapon i mean because that's the general argument that you find in a lot of criminal cases where um we actually take the cop to trial and um when they're on, when they're on the stand a lot a lot of the arguments that are made is i felt threatened or this person was coming at me or yeah just it, just this general sense of i feel threatened and my question has always been like but why does simply because 
you feel threatened. I mean, you're pointing a gun at someone. Right. Like, I've, I feel threatened by you pointing your gun at me. Yeah. Like, and so I just like suddenly why, um, why do you become more important, more important than that next person or that your life suddenly becomes more precious? And that's, um, I know there's not a, a lot of, um, scientific data surrounding that I, that's just fundamentally something that i believe is is a human being yeah i mean i think you bring up a very strong point let's say this was a legit home invasion doesn't mean that that person deserves to die summarily at your like you can't just execute them um yeah without you know a little more let's investigate a little bit not just shoot <laughs> mm-hmm. because uh i supposedly entered the wrong apartment which Seems yeah. dubious at best in this particular case, but oh my god, like here we are again. Yeah, I mean, it feels like this is just going to be a never ending thing that we're just gonna, I mean, we're just gonna have to deal with this until there. I mean, I, I just don't see there being a large push to reform law enforcement, especially in the in the way that it's gonna, it would need to be really, really fixed from a systemic standpoint. Yeah. Are we willing to put forth the resources to train cops on de-escalating these scenarios? And, you know, I don't know. There's got to be something we can do. But at the same time, it, it feels, you know, and this is with anything. I, it tends to feel overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Yes, um, yes. Um, I I feel overwhelmed all the time. Because um, like I said, there's a lot of pieces to the puzzle. Um, DAs prosecutors, educating judges, educating people, having people confront their privilege, um, understanding how the criminal justice system works, um, understanding that when you have to check that felony box, it changes your entire life for for, um, what Michelle Alexander would call, um, she wrote the new Jim Crow, what she would call um, legal discrimination and how that alone cripples families and cripples communities can't find Um, a place to live you can't get a job you mm -hmm. can't get you can't be your only option is a life of you know i mean crime perhaps or yeah something you have no access to rehabilitate yourself yeah um or also this mindset or this notion i'm kind of going back to like whatever happens to you is is a result of all of your decisions and these consequences, like you deserve it. Right. And I think um, there's kind of a, there's no compassion there. It's like, okay, if I um, have this, have this record and I'm actually really, really trying to make something better of my life and myself, but I run into barrier after barrier after barrier and I have children to support. I have people who rely on me what's the quickest form of me getting an income or getting or resources money that or, I need food. And, exactly. And so for, for someone to um, stand there and say, I would never make that decision or I would never do that um, clearly has never been faced with a situation of real poverty. Um, and, and I'm not saying that everyone is subject or would make those decisions, but you do not come from a, um, from a perspective of someone who's just understanding. Right. I know, like, I'm not ever going to say that I, I've never been faced with that. So I have no, I have no idea what decision I would make, but I'm not so good to say that I wouldn't make those decisions, that I wouldn't do what I had to do. Um, and I just think people forget that. I think people forget, um, even people who are incarcerated, like they're people, 
Yeah. Like we, we, we love to call them criminals and we love to throw them away and we love to not think about them, but they are people with families. Um, and a statistic that I just became aware of that really boggled my mind was, I think it was 90 to 93% of people who are in jail are going to reenter into society. That's a, not that that's a problem. That's a great thing that they're coming back into society, but that's something that we as a society need to deal with. We need to help them. Um, and that's a responsibility. I think we've fallen way short. Oh, absolutely. And I think some of the the fact that it has been, you know, a large sort of marginalized set of people that are getting exploited and ground up by the penal system definitely makes it even worse. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It's because there's they, those people don't have a voice. They don't have someone to stand up for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I think... Um, I, the more I'm becoming aware of it, the more uh, I'm aware of movements to help correct this. And so, like I said, um, as we are entering into this Beto versus um, <laughs> Ted, mildly, <laughs> mildly optimistic, um, I'm actually more optimistic about the movements and the change and the things that there's some really incredible people that are working on changing this. Um, but I also know that there's some fierce proponents and something that I don't think others really think about is how pervasive these types of feelings and, and, and racism and, and these thoughts and um, this ideology is with people that you love and care about. Um, and I, I think that's also a hard pill to swallow and something that I've uh, dedicated my life to is it's hard and it sucks and these are weird awkward conversations but whenever something you know you have your old grandma who maybe says something that's really inappropriate and you just kind of laugh it off because oh that's just her generation oh that's just this but that comes from something and something needs to be said that doesn't mean you need yeah. to scream at your grandma that doesn't mean you call need to- grandma out yeah. at thanksgiving dinner <laughs> I in in <laughs> exactly, and I just um, I think there's a way to do that, um, and not to just to kind of provide an example. I definitely don't want to toot my own horn here. Um, I was in a um, I am a person of faith, so I was at a Bible study, and um, it's interesting because a lot of questions get asked of me and um, my husband. We're in interracial marriage, and. A lot of questions get asked about integrating churches because that's also a big thing too. And um, I think churches also need to realize that they're fighting things that have been in place a long time, housing division, housing planning, the way our communities are set up. That's a whole nother conversation. But we get asked that a lot. Like, how do we integrate churches? And um, we kind of, a lot of the conversation normally goes towards, oh, you just need to be, just reach out to people, just be kind, just do this. Um, I don't, and I remember there was an, an older lady that was, um, said the phrase, I am, um, like, I don't see color. And I said, no, 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 no. I said that, the no, 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 no. Um, very, you know, but, and I had to kindly just tell her, like, I have to see my husband's blackness to understand his experience his culture, what he goes through on a day-to-day basis as a black man living in America. For me to say, oh, I don't see color, that's because it's because I'm white. It's because I right, have Right, yeah, you're not affected by it. Exactly. Like those systemic things, I don't have to worry about. So I have the privilege to not see color, while someone who is of color is constantly Has reminded of that exactly. every single day. Um, and she understood. It was a great conversation. And... 
Um, you know, I'm not saying every conversation that you enter with someone about something like that is going to always be positive, but I think those honest interruptions are essential to making a bigger change. Nice. I, I think that's a fantastic way to actually close out the podcast. Cool. <laughs> do, 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 do. That's definitely a good note. So yeah, uh, just call call out grandma. Thanksgiving is right <laughs> around the corner. Oh, so when she excited. starts uh, blabbing about law and order and racism, <laughs> shut her down. Shut, shut, shut that down. Shut grandma down. You bleepity bleep grandma. <laughs> Shut up. God, please, please do not go cuss out your grandmas, guys. I did not authorize this. At Thanksgiving dinner, no less, right? Everyone's gathered. Just sling your turkey. Grandma, you racist B. Oh, my God. Love it. But, uh, yeah. Anyways, thanks so much for coming back on. I thought this was a, a fun and productive conversation. So Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I always, always enjoy it. Definitely keep in touch. Let me know what you're up to. And if you have some articles or posts or anything you're doing, definitely feel free to uh, share those. I'll be happy to pass them, you know, post them on my social media channels and all that good stuff. Yeah. um, If anybody has questions that handle the at the woke library, you can always comment or DM. You know, if anybody has any questions, reach out. I'm here. I'm friendly. I promise. (laughs) Once again, Sarah Nugent uh, joining podcast with Cooper Cherry, but uh, we're signing off for the week. Thanks, guys.